What is it about me that makes me relevant as a speaker tonight? That's a better question, I guess. I have written a great deal about many things, but on the one hand, I've been forced to describe myself as having the vocation of an historian, the job of a critic, and the avocation of a folklorist. There's a word for you, folklorist. I have written several books on uh, haunted houses and things of that nature, and twice been on the George Norrie show. In fact, something terrible happened one night. There was a bit of a disturbance while I was being interviewed, and I had to shut the door. And that, of course, changed how I sounded on the radio. So if you ever look at George Norrie's, uh, oh, the people who write in, you know, a ton of people were wondering whether or not something had happened and I'd been gotten to while the broadcast was going on. I'm happy to say, ladies and gentlemen, I was not gotten to, and in fact, am quite well. Well, maybe not mentally, but otherwise fine. All right. So uh, this evening's topic, Angels, Demons, and the Unseen, is suggested by two important facts. In the religious world, i.e. the world of the church, September is the month of the holy angels. Why is that? Because September 29th is the great feast of St. Michael in the new calendar, St. Michael and all angels. In the traditional calendar, just St. Michael, and he gets another, another feast in addition, as do the other two named archangels. More of them momentarily. And then in the secular world, in case you've noticed, it's already the Halloween season. Anybody seen that? You, know, you go into Safeway or, or anything like this, and there are already the Halloween things up. And the Christmas season, as we know, will begin in early October. So you'll have this weird nightmare before Christmas thing going on uh, for about a month before Halloween. It's, it's pretty strange stuff. But at any rate, those are the two things that influenced me on tonight's, uh, tonight's topic. There is, on the one hand, a lot of misinformation running about with these sorts of things. And on the other, while the church teaches us some very, very specific items that we really must believe, an awful lot is left open to speculation. Why is this? Well, the answer is the church only teaches us, only presents to us things we absolutely have to accept that we need for our salvation. Beyond that, it's all a question of what's there and what isn't. It's why you won't find anything about America in the Bible. <laughs> whether or not there is a continent on the other side of the sea isn't really important to your salvation right here in third century Spain. So it's important to know that. The other thing to bear in mind, too, is that there are different levels of church teaching in terms of solemnity. And then there's also the fact that you've got lots of theologians down through the ages with many, many different opinions about all sorts of things. I mention all this because I'll be talking about different topics tonight. Some of it is direct church teaching, which we all have to accept. A lot of it's speculation, and I'll try to remember to tell you when it's speculation. All right? If I forget the difference between the two, well, then you're stuck because we're not doing questions and answers. So there it is. All right. So let's start then. Angels. Now, it's very, very important to remember first what angels are not. Anybody here ever see, uh, and there'll be more for you older folks, a Hallmark Hall of Fame show, The Littlest Angel? 
Remember that with Johnny Whitaker? Yes, he dies and he goes to heaven and becomes an angel. Well, no, that's not what happens. Nope. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, and more importantly, the church will tell you, angels and human beings are totally different. They are not the same. We are two different orders of creation entirely. We, human beings that is, are, we have a specific beginning at the time of our conception when body and soul are completed together, are created together. And then we go on until our deaths when we have a period of separation. And at some point to be determined in the future, we should be reunited. We are hybrid creatures of flesh and spirit. But the angels, no. The angels have never had bodies. They never shall have bodies. They are incorporeal. There's a word for you, incorporeal. If you do know it, use it to impress your friends and neighbors. If you don't know it, now you've heard it. Incorporeal. At any rate, the thing to remember about the angels, and we'll deal with the second half of them shortly, as I'm sure you're aware. They were created by God before we were. And when he created them, at some point subsequent thereto, he gave them a choice to follow him or to refuse. Now, we don't really know how that worked out because we weren't there. And we have had certain things given to us. Michael fought against the devil and his angels, and they were thrown out of heaven. Some have speculated, because of the line in Scripture about a third of the stars of heaven being put out, that perhaps a third of all the created angels at that time joined Lucifer in his rebellion. And, so say some, all the human beings that will be saved number roughly the third that were lost among the angels. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly sounds good. Now, the thing to bear in mind, too, about angels is that unlike us, you know that half of our decisions are based upon how we're feeling at the moment, whether we're hungry, we're happy, we're sad, this, that, and all the other, which is why it's very difficult for us to keep resolutions for good or ill. We go backwards and forwards. With the angels, that's not a, not a question at all. Therefore, when they made their initial decision... That was it. They did so with full malice or not, a forethought. And they will not deviate ever from that decision. So Michael is not going to suddenly figure, you know what, this, I don't know about this whole thing. No. And the devil, the devil, despite his defeats, will never change his mind. They have made their choices for good or for ill, and they exist with them. So, what do we know about the unfallen angels? Well, there are several things the church teaches us. Uh, there are seven archangels that stand before the throne of God, of whom we are given only three, some would say, what some would say four names. The three, Michael, the great chieftain and warrior, patron of the church, patron of dying souls, patron of all sorts of things, uh, whose feast is coming up, the leader of the archangels, St. Gabriel, 
He was the one who revealed to Our Lady that she was going to become the Mother of God. And St. Raphael, who you will remember from the book of Tobias, and who uh, is called the healer of God. He's one of, the, uh, one of the folk we pray to when we need medicine, healing. Our Lady Health of the Sick, St. Luke, St. Cosmos, and Damien, and St. Raphael. The other four names are given from various sources, but they're not scriptural, and so the church does not expect you to accept them. Um, but there are seven, and as you know, seven is a very, very key number in our faith. Seven key virtues, seven deadly sins, and so on. Now, the other thing you should know about the angels, well, more than one, a particular thing you should know about them, is the concept of the choirs of angels. Anyone ever hear of that? Choirs of angels? Maybe in Christmas carols? Well, this comes to us from uh, initially, so far as we can tell, from said Dionysius the Areopagite. There's a name for you, Areopagite. Say that over and over. Again, it's one of those things like incorporeal that'll really impress people. Anyway, they range then nine of them, and they're seen as having descending importance depending on how far their missions take them from God. The first three are the closest, seraphim, cherubim, thrones. They are before the presence of God at all times. Throw, uh, powers, dominations, virtues. Hmm, I may be out of order there. You'll have to excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm terrible with lists when I'm doing it all from my head. It'll happen to you one day when you're lecturing in front of a bunch of people. Remember, it's the easiest thing in the world to look foolish in front of a crowd. I know I've done it many times. Uh, but then lastly, there are the uh, dominions, I think, archangels and angels. Angel being the name of the lowest of the nine choirs. But for us, it's very key. Why? Because from the ranks of the angels are recruited the guardian angels who in the traditional calendar get a feast of their own. I'm going to tell you something very strange now, which you may have heard, you may not have. Each of us have a guardian angel. Each and every one of us. And could we see the scene that we're in the midst of right now, we would see a ton of angels. Fortunately, and I say that for a reason, fortunately we can't see them, usually. But Every one of us is given an angel guardian by God to help us on our road to try to help us win salvation. That's why a very good practice is to pray to your guardian angel for help and advice. And I'll tell you honestly, I was convinced of the existence of guardian angels by the fact that I got here from the airport today. <laughs> it's true. Have you ever been in a position where you're driving along and somebody pulls right in front of you, you jam on the brakes, and you look at that other car, and you can see there's a big dent right where you would have hit. This person has driven this way before, and they will do again. But the fact that A, you didn't hit them, and B, they're still around driving like that, shows you that the guardian angels of both of you are working. But he does have a somewhat more elevated, uh, elevated task, and that is, again, to suggest good things to you, good ideas. Have you ever 
had a really uplifting thought that came to you out of nowhere, or an impulse that was actually pretty good. You know, a lot of our impulses, well, all right, maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but a lot of my impulses really aren't so great. But every now and then, something will come along, you know what, I haven't heard from so-and-so, maybe I should give him a call. And I do. And he's sick, or dying, or just unhappy. But everything changes all of a sudden. And so-and-so is much happier and everything's a lot better. That kind of impulse that comes to you out of the blue might well be coming to you from your guardian angel. They suggest things. But, and this is an important thing to bear in mind about them and all the other angels, they can only suggest. Ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, we do share one important thing with the angels, and that is free will. As I've said, we're somewhat affected by different things that go on in a way that they're not. But your guardian angel, no more than God himself, can break your free will. He can suggest, he can impel, that's the limits. At any rate, those in a nutshell uh, are the personal guardian angels. Now many theologians teach that countries have guardian angels and that people in particular offices, kings and presidents, may have an additional guardian angel given them to help them in their task. Speculation amongst many of the medieval theologians even about the, the role of the angels in God's rule of the universe. Now, I'm no theologian, but an awful lot of what our medievals wrote about then, and that uh, the 19th century people were pleased to call superstition, these days tend to make a lot of sense. We do not know, we do not understand the world around us, many of its forces, and so on. We speak of gravity, we speak of electricity, we speak of all sorts of things that because we're defined, we think we know and understand them. But we don't. And who is to say what the role of angels in the physical running of the universe is? Who could possibly deny it? So, of course, that's a little bit unfair. You know, it's far easier, ladies and gentlemen, to prove something is and something isn't. <laughs> It's very difficult to prove that something isn't. Very difficult. Anyway, I digress. So, there we have, ladies and gentlemen, the angelic realm. It's all around us. And the other thing I should probably point out about it, a lot of our view of it is done from art. Has anybody seen the little cherubs, the little fat babies, the putti? Aren't they sweet? Yeah. And you've seen other angels, like at Christmas, you know, the, the uh, sort of pre-Raphaelite ladies with wings. You know, you've seen these, right? Well, those are suggestions. But don't think angels are really like that. For starters, the wings are meant to imply speed. And what the theologians have said is that the angels can move with the speed of thought. Can't be everywhere at once, but they can move with the speed of thought. Imagine, you think about Paris, boom, you're there. Then you think about Istanbul, boom, you're there. Then you think about Hollywood Boulevard, why I don't know, boom, you're there. So the speed of thought, ladies and gentlemen, is implied by the wings. But when you look at the Bible, what are we constantly told? What, what is Our Lady told by uh, the Archangel St. Gabriel? 
be not afraid. Well, why would they say that? Because the angels are of a very different order of creation than we are used to. Anyone here ever read C.S. Lewis? Hmm? A couple, that's great. Well, you remember his novel, uh, The Space Trilogy? Well, the second volume thereof is called Paralandra. And his depiction of an angel in the beginning as this disturbing, strange, peculiar force always rang pretty true with me. But I can't claim to have ever seen an angel. I never have. Well, except my mother, of course. She, she was an angel, definitely. And that being the case, ladies and gentlemen, when you, when you read about angels, try to put out of your mind the little putty and the pre-Raphaelite ladies. Now, here's an important question. What sex are the angels? Aha, exactly, none. So they look, so, I mean, we've seen accounts of them, for instance, uh, at the time of the resurrection. They can look male, but they don't have a gender. That's another way they're different from us. They are very much a different sort of thing. I guarantee you, if you ever run into an angel, you will know it. Believe me, it, and, and won't look anything like Della Reese, I promise. Now, those are the unfallen angels. But as I said, Lucifer and his gang fell. Now, these, of course, are the people we call the devil and the demons. Creatures, I should say, not people, because God knows they're not people. Everything that you could say about the physical attributes, as it were, of angels is true of the demons. They can move at the speed of thought. They do not tire. They never get hungry. They do not get thirsty. And they are implacable. Just as the blessed angels are implacable in the pursuit of good, the demons are implacable in the pursuit of evil. As the, your guardian angel will do almost anything he possibly can think of to aim you toward heaven, the demons will do anything they can to aim you toward hell. Um, each of us, you know, have innate good and bad, positive and negative qualities. And the two sides will work on these, even though at the end of the day the decision is always our own. Now, one of the funny things about the demons versus the angels is like good and evil in, in general. Good, in the long run, may be more powerful, but it does often seem that evil is far louder at any given moment and more, how do I put this nicely, spectacular. Spectacular. We as fallen creatures as intelligent, as intelligent creatures, as aspirers after the divine, we have a certain connection with the unfallen angels. But as fallen creatures, we have a certain connection with the demons. And they would like to see us join them forever and ever and ever. Not, however, unlike the other angels, would also like to see that, not for our benefit, but for our ruin. Now, again, I do not know if this is true, but a lot of our medieval thinkers saw that hell was the mirror image, as it were, of heaven, with a sort of uh, infernal lowerarchy, as you might say. 
fallen seraphim being far lower than normal, regular demons and so on. And they have very, very, um, very intricate lists of demons and so forth that come to us in the Middle Ages. Again, I don't know how true those are. I'm not in a position to know, thankfully. But Satan, the chief of them all, him we know. We know a few other things from the Bible. We know, and this, of course, is always the great popular thing. We know about possession. Who here saw the exorcist? Come on, you know who you are. Yeah, 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 me too. I saw that thing when I was 15 years old. <laughs> Turned my hair white. No. <laughs> no, I, that's a lie. It, it did it all on its own without help. But, <laughs> hey, I've still got some, all right? I'm very proud of it. So it'll probably fall out soon for my having said that. But anyway, uh, that actually, although it was kind of a gathering together of a lot of different accounts, that was taken more or less from a particular occurrence. I uh, was privileged to know a priest who was the um, archdiocesan exorcist in L.A. for some years. He was from Sri Lanka. A very matter of fact about the, uh, the possessions he had to deal with, one of the things that the exorcist has to do is go for 40 days on bread and water. It's called the Black Fast. If you don't, then, as uh, Father said to me, you'll come in and the devil will say, what are you coming in here with your belly filled with food? So he said, if you don't take the black fast, you will be embarrassed. Another thing he pointed out was that during uh, exorcisms, they have to have a lot of witnesses. That's kind of one of the rules. But it's very important for the, for the um, witnesses to go to confession and make a clean breast of all their sins, particularly their mortal sins. The reason being that if they don't, the demons have the un unpleasant habit of calling them out. Now imagine that you're witnessing one of these things, and again, I've ne I never have, but you're witnessing one of these things, various things are going on, and suddenly the possessed person looks up at you and begins popping out with all your worst sins in front of everyone like that. As Father said to me, most embarrassing, very, very unpleasant to watch the faces of people as the demon would call out their sins. Very, very unpleasant. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it was. I know um, one, uh, one priest of my acquaintance uh, was a very controversial figure, but uh, is Father Malachi Martin, now deceased. He didn't believe in any of this sort of thing at all for most of his early career. He was, um, as he put it, a garden variety liberal Jesuit. <laughs> and uh, any Jesuits in the room? I, I gotta be very careful with, I went to a Jesuit school so I don't wanna be punished at, at an alumni thing, you know. The, uh, <laughs> we used to say during the 60s when they were really experimenting with the masses every which way but loose, that there were only two things that will never change at a Jesuit mass. Yeah, you know, you know the punchline, the bread and the wine, ha, ha, ha. But anyway, I don't want to bag too much on the Jesuits. Uh, they may be laying in wait for me. But no, seriously, the thing was, he intended to write a book to debunk the whole notion of exorcisms and demons and all that kind of stuff. He did write that book, but it wasn't the book he had set out to write. Why? 
because he went to exorcisms. That's why. And I suspect some of his own peccadilloes got uh, thrown out for him to enjoy with the others. It totally changed him. So if you ask yourself, and it's a good question really, why would God allow, allow demons to possess an individual? Well, there are three reasons really. One, we don't know what the individual himself was or wasn't up to or those around him. Two, uh, and this, this speaks to how the devil operates in societies like ours. Nothing will convert the onlooker like a possession. And thirdly, to show his power. Why? Because the prayers of the church work. Because despite the displays of preternatural, another word for you, preternatural, I, I should say something. You, supernatural is a word you've heard, yes, yes. You know, supernatural theater on Channel 9 after Creature Features, right. Well, <laughs> for Catholics, supernatural really refers only to the works of God. The works of the devil and of strange things we don't understand, those are called preternatural. Just so you know, there is a difference in otherwise you end up with uh, Madame Leota reading tarot cards being the same as the Archangel Michael appearing, which believe me, they're not. All right. So, the thing is, ladies and gentlemen, in the defeat of an exorcism, in the humbling of a mighty demon, or several of them, at the hands of a mere man, through the use of a few words and water and things like that, what a tremendous showing forth of the power of God. But, and here's a big but, the church does not jump, and never did, by the way, if you read the old manuals of the Inquisition, the church never jumps to the conclusion that someone is possessed. Every other possibility has to be exercised first. Exercise, pardon the expression. Has to be, um, every other possibility has to be eliminated first. And this is a very important thing, because an exorcism is not going to work if a guy's just crazy. You know, there are a lot of crazy people out there. I, I, I don't want to be the one to break it to anyone. There are a lot of bloody nuts. It's true, and always have been. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being nuts. As a society, we've embraced it, and I, I celebrate that. Insanity is who we are now, and that's great. But, but it is not a basis upon which to conduct a successful exorcism. If there's no demon there, you ain't going to chase him out. So they've got to make sure there is one. Now, the thing to bear in mind also, I've said that the prayers and so on of the church work. Well, this is why we have them, the sacramentals, holy water, the scapular, things of this nature. We all should have them in our homes. Why? Because forget for a moment about possession and all that. Remember I said... The guardian angels are running about giving us good impulses. Well, their opposite numbers are also doing the opposite. As with the guardian angel, we have to, you know, accept and go along with the idea. But for some reason, probably our fallen nature, it is easier for us to give in to the bad thoughts that seemingly come out of nowhere than the good ones. Usually because the good ones require a certain amount of work. <laughs> 
Good, lazy, bad ones, huh? Easy enough. But as a result, to lessen anything of that sort, it is important, ladies and gentlemen, that we use the sacramentals of the church, the weapons that God has given us through the medium of his church. Now, I suppose there's one other thing I need to say about the demonic before we move on to the last portion, the unseen. St. John Chrysostom once said that if we could see how life really is, we would all faint dead away from fright. Now think about that, ladies and gentlemen. It's very true. Because you see, we struggle, as St. Paul says, not against, uh, not against uh, uh, flesh and blood, but the spirits of evil in the high places. He's not talking, I've got I've to emphasize, he's not talking about the heads of co multinational corporations or, 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 or rulers of totalitarian countries. He's talking about demons. Remember, we are called upon to love our enemy, but that love extends only to our human enemies. The other sort are incapable of love, unlike human beings, however debauched they may be. They're incapable of love, they're completely corrupt. And I should say, although we'll get into this in a minute, never, ever, ever invite them into your home. Has anyone seen the meme? Uh, it's easy to make fun of Catholics until you have a demon in your house. Ever see that? A lot of truth to it. And I've, I'll close off this section simply by saying that I am amazed by how many non-Catholics who find their, um, their residences the home of preternatural activity. They'll go running to a Catholic priest, not to their own. And this was before the exorcist. You know, I mean, you'd think, oh, well, after the exorcist, they know that it's kind of our stock and trade. Well, no. Uh, it is, on a very basic level, an impulse a lot of people faced with this sort of thing have. Uh, one of the things that uh, the priest of whom I spoke told me was that in his native country, Sri Lanka, an awful lot of Catholic converts were made that way, simply because our priests could drive out the demon and the Buddhists could not. That's a pretty, you know, again, you ask, why is this allowed? Well, because if it conduces to the salvation of souls, there it is. Um, let me see, I think I've said, oh, one more thing I should say, and then we'll move on. I went to fairly liberal schools in the 1970s, Catholic schools. I mean, where we were taught, you didn't really have to know much of anything or believe much of anything. Or go to Mass if you didn't want to, if you didn't get anything out of it. And at that time, I was told, well, you know, Angels and demons are quite possibly not real. I mean, they're part, they're part of the folk, uh, the, the folk background of every major religion. And I remember thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. If that's true, that speaks more for their reality than not. Because as Catholics, we are the beneficiaries of revelation given us by the church. But as sheer human beings, we're capable of observing things and living with things and seeing how things happen. And so were our ancestors. And so were the people in China and Africa and everywhere else. This is one of the things I find fascinating about folklore, incidentally, is the, 
the uh, enormous number of motifs that you'll find in common around the globe. I digress. What if it's not the demons and angels of this weird pagan thing that we Catholics simply picked up and stayed with, or the Jews before us, and then we picked it up from them? What if it's simply that they are objective reality? <laughs> that they are, <laughs> they are simply true and perceived by people, whether they were Catholic or Buddhist or pagan or whatever else they might be. Just like you don't have to be Catholic to know the sky is blue. You know, if you jump off a cliff, you'll go splat, those sorts of things. You don't have to be Catholic to know that. What if it's the same way with this? All right, now moving along. We leave the angelic and demonic folk behind us, and we have one more thing to look at, the unseen. And then now you see we're, we're leaving September and moving to the Halloween season. Primarily what I'm going to touch on here, are we ready, ladies and gentlemen? All right. Grasp the hands of those around you. Ghosts! Yes. But now, before I say anything else, let me say that what you're going to hear, for, with a couple of exceptions, is all speculation various theologians, various writers, and so on and so forth, and of course, experience. Experience does count for something. All right. From the early, early days, people like St. Augustine wrote about hauntings. And what did they write? Well, firstly, that these appeared, these were of course the apparitions of the dead. Now, there appear to be two major differences, two different types of them. One is where they're seemingly unintelligent. There's no there there. Every third Friday of the full moon, Aunt Hepzibah walks in the blue chamber. And she walks, you can throw rocks at her, and the thing just keeps on moving, like an old movie theater. Whatever it is, there doesn't seem to be a soul attached, an intelligence present. Then you have the other kind. I recommend a book for you. Sir Sean Leslie looks like Shane, because it's Irish. The Irish can't spell Sean. It's a Scots name. But it's S-H-A-N-E, Sir Sean Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E. -E. And in case you're kind of curious as to what it's about, it's called The Ghost Book. <laughs> but Sir Sean Leslie was a um, friend of Chesterton and Bellick and all that. And it's simply the, the best book on the subject that you'll find. Uh, in English, anyway. You find some good books in other languages, but, you know. Anyway, now, of the sort that have intelligence, the uh, theologians that wrote about it, believe that they fell into three different categories. One, damned souls. Two, demons masquerading as the dead. And that's kind of a distinction without a difference, because a damned soul who might appear to you doesn't mean any better by you than a demon would. And then there are those who come back from purgatory, either to bring warnings or ask for prayers. Has anyone here been to Rome? Ah, has anyone here seen the Purgatory Museum? Wow, everyone's staring. What, what does he mean, the Purgatory Museum? Nuts? Yeah, well, I may be nuts, but there is such a place. Uh, there's a church very close to the Vatican, very close to uh, Monte San Angelo, called Sacro Cuore del Suffragio, which is Italian for the holy, uh, the uh, sacred heart of the suffrages. 
founded by a French order. You know, the French orders were the best. Everyone always agreed. At least the French do. Anyway, uh, and it was founded, this particular order, Missionaries of the Sacred Heart, had prayer for the, uh, for the souls in purgatory as one of their big reasons for existing. The Purgatory Museum is really a collection of items. How do I describe them? The stories are all very similar. Basically, someone is sitting late at night. A dead person they knew appears and asks for X number of masses, X number of prayers. And the person to whom they appear says, well, yeah, but no one's going to believe me. This is crazy. And said person will put their hand on something and burn it. And what is in this Purgatory Museum is a collection of burned things with the stories thereof. Oddly enough, having seen that, I was uh, in Bratislava, Slovakia. There's a name for you. And in the cathedral, in the treasury, they have a, an item just like that, another burned item with a long story about it. But I knew what that sort of thing was because I'd seen the Purgatory Museum. So, lest you think I'm completely mad, Sacro Cuore del Suffragio. And these, these things are all fairly recent, the 1800s, 1900s. Uh, Sir Sean, in the book to which I referred, makes reference to a haunting in a rectory, and he gives the exact place and name and all that. I won't because I don't remember it, but you'll see it there. And it's an interesting story and typical of these sorts of Catholic ghost stories. Basically, late 19th century, a priest gets sick, the pastor of the place, goes into hospital, dies. He's gone. And he begins appearing in the rectory library. Well, as you can imagine, the people are a little bit disturbed by this. The truth is, they go running out as soon as they see him. And this goes on for 10, 20 years. Finally, they get a new pastor in the place. He's in the library, the other priest appears, and he says to him, in the name of Almighty God, what do you want? And the apparition points at a book and vanishes. The priest pulls out the book, opens it up, and in there are a list of masses that were paid for but never said by that priest because he went into the hospital and couldn't say them and then died. So the priest said all those masses for the intentions required and one for the repose of the soul of the dead priest, and as they say, the ghost was never seen again. Now this brings us to the real consideration at hand, which is the Catholic attitude towards such things. Firstly, one of the biggest things we owe the dead is prayers for their shortening of purgatory, of purgatories where they've been. Now, to explain a little bit about purgatory, because there's a lot of misconception these days. If you go to my funeral, ladies and gentlemen, and you hear anybody saying, oh, Charles is in heaven now, smack him. <laughs> Don't you ever be saying that. Charles wants prayers for the repose of his soul. And if, through some strange misaccounting of bookkeeping in heaven, I am there, then those prayers you say will go to someone else who needs them. So don't you ever be, yes, he was a living saint. No, he wasn't. Trust me. I've lived with the man for 55 years. This ain't no living saint. Trust me on this. Anyway, we've been together since we were very young. All right, anyway. Too peculiar. No, I self-identify as myself. Uh, at any rate. So, 
The thing is, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, the truth is that whenever we commit a sin, there's the sin itself, which of course is forgiven when we go to confession, but every sin carries with it corporal punishment that can be worked out in this life or the next, which is why it's important to offer up all your pains and annoyances, like acting like a moron in front of a big crowd, say, um, offering that up for your own sins. It'll shorten your time in purgatory if, if you're going to get any. Nevertheless, once you go there, that has to be worked off. And how is it worked off? It's worked off through our own suffering. But it can be alleviated by the prayers of the living. Prayer for the dead, as we're told in the book of Maccabees in the Bible, is an important duty. And it's something that these days we neglect all too often. Well, that is the biggest thing, the prayer for the dead, that we owe them. And you know, November is the month of the holy souls. Uh, just for those of you who are Eastern Rite fans, you guys don't have the Feast of All Souls. You've got Soul Saturdays, the primary one of which is the Saturday before Pentecost, but you've got several others scattered through the year. The reason for that is in commemoration of Holy Saturday when our Lord was in the tomb. One of the wonderful things about the different rites of the church is that they all end up saying the same thing, but they get to it in very different routes, which I love. Anyway, so that is the primary way in which we Catholics should deal with the dead. Now, what about summoning the dead? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. No seances, ladies and gentlemen. No Ouija boards. Anybody ever seen a Ouija board? Few people. Uh, Prime Minister William Lyons, who Kenzie King and President Abraham Lincoln used to get advice from uh, mediums at seances, so it can't be all bad. Yes, it can. But... I will tell you a very quick funny story. I went to a military junior college, New Mexico Military Institute. I'm gonna tell you the name, and if anybody laughs, so help me, in Roswell, New Mexico. There, I've said it. No laughter. The alumni, the alumni association will be on you like hawks. But there was a fellow two doors down from me who used to use the Ouija board. I always wore my St. Benedict medal, and it never worked when I'd come in the room. And after a while, he began to connect the fact that the thing didn't work when I was there. And he realized what, it, what was going on. If I said, you got some kind of metal or something? I said, yeah, take it off when you came in. No. <laughs> no. My Coulomb didn't raise no moron, I'll tell you that. No, if, if you're chuckling with that stuff, ladies and gentlemen. So Catholics are forbidden to summon the spirits. Now, wait a minute. What happens if I see one? Well, you're not forbidden to see cars passing in the night either. You see what you see. I can tell you, though, and this um, at the risk of um, betraying myself even further, uh, I can tell you a little bit from personal experience. If you ever find yourself in the position of having a house with things going bump in the night, the first thing you do is toss holy water around. One of two things will happen. It will stop or it will get worse. Most of the time it stops. If it gets worse, then what you want to do is have the priest in to bless the house. You don't have to tell him why. You should probably have had it blessed anyway. 
You do that, one of two things will happen. It will stop, which is what usually takes place, or it'll get worse. If it gets worse, ladies and gentlemen, then you're going to have to come clean with the priest and tell him what's going on. Getting a house exercised is a little, it's less bothersome than trying with a person. And some houses have actually needed it. Um, again, when you see things flying through the air and all that, you will never doubt again. We had a columnist here in L.A., beautiful, beautiful Los Angeles, called Jack Smith. Anybody old enough to remember Jack Smith? A few people, all gray heads like me. Very good. Uh, well, no, the, the ladies were all beautiful, but those guys that raised their hands. They... Anyway, Jack Smith was the epitome of suburban Los Angeles, of the good life in the valley. Yes, it was possible to have a good life in the San Fernando Valley once. It's true. Anyway, yeah, that shows you how long ago it was. Anyway, so Jack Smith, he was a, a very popular columnist, didn't believe in God, didn't believe in ghosts, didn't believe in nothing. He was a very funny writer, though. Well, about 1983, there was a very, very, well, renowned poltergeist incident in Torrance, California. And it was on the news, and UCLA sent a, uh, para, I was going to say paraliturgical, no, paranormal team down to measure things and all that sort of stuff. And they, it, was, it was a big three-day wonder. So Jack Smith writes about this thing in his column. And he says, oh, these people are all crazy, or it's a fraud, or it's this, or it's that, blah, blah, blah. All right. The owner of the house in which all this was happening wrote Jack Smith a letter. And he said, dear Mr. Smith, you're so smart and you know everything. So why don't you come down here, you sit in my living room, and then out of your vast knowledge of everything, you tell me what's happening. Jack Smith, and this is where he won on my undying affection from that day to this. He published the letter and said, I'm not going there. Because if it turns out to be true, I'm going to have to completely reorient my entire philosophy of life, and I am too old to do it. I mean, basically he said, I'm a fraud, live with it, eat it. And I, you know, how can you not love somebody who's that up front? Uh, so when these sorts of things happen, and you may encounter them, ladies and gentlemen, of course the vast majority of them have natural explanations. Sometimes they don't. When they don't, well, it is a reminder, and very often a useful reminder, that life is like an iceberg. The unseen is by far the larger portion of it. And we are very, very lucky indeed that life is as it is. We can't see most things for precisely the reasons that John Chrysostom said. We would faint dead away with fright. But in, I guess, concluding, let me check and see what time it is. You know, I've got, fortunately, my timer uh, left. Oh, very good. Ladies and gentlemen, we're almost done with the hour. That's great stuff. Uh, in conclusion, let me say this about that. The truth, now I know I, I have to conclude, so it makes it easier. Uh, in conclusion, let me say this. The church exists for two major reasons. The one is the salvation of souls. 
the bringing of you, me, and everybody we know to eternal union with God, to the beatific vision in heaven. That's the first. But the second is to keep off the dark. The dark exterior, the dark in our souls. If you find yourself fearful this Halloween, having watched, oh, I don't know, The Exorcist, Plan 9 from Outer Space, um, it, she, them. <laughs> there was a time, you know, where you could do a horror movie just by using a pronoun. <laughs> it did it. Although I don't think anybody ever did us, <laughs> which would be really scary. Anyway, if you begin to fear the power of the devil and the power of the unseen, other than uh, dousing yourself with holy water, go to confession. The, the moment you come out of that confessional is the time when the forces of darkness will have the very least amount of power they can possibly have over you. Until, of course, you fall into the same old rot, as do we all, alas. But anyway, with that, ladies and gentlemen, let me say thank you very much and happy Halloween.